This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Anyone interested in U.S. politics now knows the name Steve Bannon, but they may be rather hazy about what he actually believes. And in one respect, that is rather surprising because he's published a lot and he makes little secret of his views. But even then, few seem to have grasped what he's actually trying to achieve. Uh, Well, that certainly cannot be said of my guest today. It is Professor Benjamin Teitelbaum, author of War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Far Right, which, amongst other things, delves into the ideological hinterland of Bannon and his allies and sort of reveals what they do believe in. So, Professor, hello. It's a pleasure to be with you. And just to sort of, first of all, understand how you know about all this, you conducted 20 hours of interviews with Steve Bannon, right? Correct, correct. That was 20 hours of on-the-record interviews. And more off the record. I actually, uh, yes, I, I, I don't know how many off the record, oftentimes informal conversations, observations, hanging out, to use a technical term, around, around people uh, offers more information than a formal interview. But yes, 20 hours of on-the-record interview. And just so we understand the terms of those discussions on and off the record, I mean, were you approaching him as an academic, as a someone who believed, shared some beliefs with him? Why did he talk to you? I certainly wasn't presenting myself as someone who shared beliefs with him. Um, I told him, I was fully honest, as I always am when I'm doing this research, uh, that I am an academic, an expert on, on the radical right. Um, with expertise, especially in expressive culture and ideology, and that I like to speak to the speak to the people who I write about face to face, and and really take a deep dive into their thinking. And all of that was enough to at least get me in the door the first time. I, I the, the bigger question that you were asking right there on why did he speak to me? It, it, he speaks to a lot of people who get close to him. What I don't understand is why he told me so much. There are certain details I don't realize. I, I can't understand why he shared with me. Um, I, I still still don't have an answer to that. I didn't the day that that I spoke to him about him, and I still don't today. Well, I, I wondered if it was because you knew so much about the sort of intellectual area that he's operating in, which not many people do know about. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Traditionalism. You actually understood what it was. You've read the stuff. You you get it. And so maybe yes. he just responded to that. He, he could have. Certainly the conversations, uh, setting aside the political aspect of it and, and, and the fact that I'm speaking to somebody who who has in, to, to some degree real power, real political power in the world, um, just the conversations themselves are enjoyable. To have a, to have a high-level conversation with anybody about anything is is enjoyable uh, to me. And, and so I, th- I do think he responded to that. The fact that he could name drop back and forth, uh, we could discuss works, books, ideas, and concepts, and, and each of us more or less know what the other was talking about, which is a rare experience. I, I, think, I think he enjoyed that, um, and that surely sustained things um, and, and allowed me to keep going back to him. Well, let's get into it then and, and start with I think I think the best way to do this is Steve Bannon's intellectual history, if you like. So, tell us, mm. you know, where his ideas started as an adult, let's say, and and where it le- where his thinking led him. If you were to ask him, he would say that he he starts to develop as a as a thinker, um, really during his childhood, and and it stems from dissatisfaction with the Catholic Church. Uh, he grew. He grows up in in Virginia, in in Richmond, Virginia, and is church going, and finds the Catholic Church that he's raised in to be sort of kind of spiritually vapid, and he starts exploring, especially when he gets his college. He does what a lot of young, really, I mean, white white men in the United States were really into at the time, which was to start exploring Buddhism, 
transcendental meditation, um, alternative spiritualities in, in all ways, shapes, and forms. Um, it was the combination of that interest, which matures over time, which becomes a little bit more esoteric and arcane um, over time. It was the combination of that interest with also right-wing politics that, that germinates in the wake of the Jimmy Carter administration um, in the 1980s in the United States that's that's where Bannon's, I think, his ideological roots are to be found. Yeah, so that's quite confusing to have Buddhism and right-wing politics because most people wouldn't put those two together. Most people wouldn't, but I actually think it makes more sense than, than we realize. Um, and this is true. There's, there's a lot of conversations going on in the United States right now, in part because of, of vaccine skepticism uh, about the ways that, that like new age wellness culture even though we tend to casually associate it with the left, is much more is much more in line with a reactionary right, not necessarily a neoliberal capitalist right, but a deep reactionary cultural conservatism. Actually, it it's, it it fits much more with that world than than we think. And what Bannon what Bannon saw in the alternative spirituality texts was one a, a criticism of of capitalism. <laughs> Which, which again, we might, we don't think about that as being right wing, but but hang on to that thought because it can be. Um, it was a criticism of social emancipation, um, emancipatory movements. If it was if it was feminism, if it were certain forms of, let's say, multiculturalist movements, because in in these alternative spirituality sources, there is a lot of emphasis on returning to one's essence and being true to one's essence. Um, of rejecting the world of materialism and and instead prioritizing spirituality, whatever that might mean. Um, those those concepts, uh, you know, taking disinterest in material relations that could be increasing your wealth, that it could also be material equality and treating material equality, equality as as an essential political question. Foregrounding spirituality, also thinking about staying true to one's roots. There's an inherent conservatism to that. That, that mixes rather well with, with the right as time goes on. Um, and it's, it's one of the things for, for Steve Bannon, it, these, these beliefs are, are, are much more consistent throughout his, his lifetime than others. Um, he was a Democrat early, early, in, early in his life, like both of his parents were. They were, they were labor, kind of old left Democrats. But as he hits the 1980s, as, he, as we get to the, to the 90s, um, he's, he's in the military, um, he's in big business, he gradually becomes both more, more patriotic, more militaristic, and then when we hit the 1990s and 2000s, uh, he starts to become expressly anti-globalist and, and really starts to, to value the right insofar as it is a weapon against globalization. And what he saw as as a sort of world government with yes capitalism but also left wing politics hand in hand um, operating to erase national borders, so so that's a bit of a, a big picture background Owen to what I think his his ideological roots were politically. Let's then talk about this body of belief called traditionalism because uh, you know before I read your book I was completely unaware of it, totally unfamiliar with it, but it is increasingly important because of, basically because of Bannon and, and people who think like him. So first of all, what is traditionalism? Traditionalism is first and foremost, a spiritual and religious school, not a political philosophy, but it, it comes into politics thanks to an Italian fascist sympathizer, sympathizer with Mussolini and collaborator with Mussolini named Julius Evola. Um, who Bannon eventually finds and and, and resonates with. Um, if I were to, if I were to, it, it's a it's a big school. There's there's a it's a it would be very hard to summarize just in this podcast, Owen. But I could I could highlight a couple concepts that are especially consequential for politics, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, the first of these the first of these concepts that that traditionalism gives um, is one of cyclicality and cyclic time. Um, and th the reason that we call it traditionalism, um, it's always written with capital T, uh, is because the, the adherents of this philosophy 
believe that there once was an, an essential, true, pure tradition, um, capital T, one single religious faith uh, that, was, that was true, that was authentic. But as time went on, it was gradually bastardized, fractured, shattered into a number of, of different religious faiths, all of which preserved some, some little piece of that, that older truth of the tradition. Um, but you really have to assemble them all to make sense of them. And typically those religious practices that are older and that come to us in a more unbroken um, tradition of practice, those are going to preserve more of that uh, essential truth, of that older truth. And one of uh, the way that this, this all works out uh, in their minds is that really as time moves on, things get worse. And just as that religious insight, the tradition was was broken apart as time as time went on, so too does the rest of society degrade. Um, and this is always taking place. We're always in a process of degradation until we hit one cataclysmic moment of destruction, when we are returned to that golden age of truth, insight, social order, and beauty, and the process of decline begins again. Another way of explaining, in the way that they explained what I just described, was to say that time was cyclical, um, that we're always involved in a cycle, and that that cycle is primarily defined by downward um, uh, destruction and decay. Uh, it's a pessimistic view of life. That is one of the truths that the traditionalists think um, explains the loss of tradition and is also one of the insights of tradition. Um, the antithesis of it is linear time is thinking that we are actually moving in a, in a one-way direction. Um, and that concept, in turn, is, is, is inherent to what traditionalists see as the opposite of their beliefs, which is modernity um, and the belief in progress. Uh, the notion that the past is irre irretrievably past to us um, and that if we work really hard, we can actually create a better future and a better society for ourselves today and tomorrow than we had yesterday. That concept is, is complete anathema to the traditionalist who thinks that the past actually contained what was great, um, true, and wise, um, in which the only hope we have for, for experiencing uh, true greatness in our society is to return to what we were. So that's one big concept, uh, this concept of, of cyclic time. The other one that I would mention to you without trying to be too, too long-winded here um, is that traditionalists also think uh, that a true great society is hierarchical, that it is constructed based on pure distinctions between different types of people or different castes. The religious, one religious tradition that preserves this idea in their mind is Hinduism. Uh, and hopefully that is familiar to a lot of your listeners, but they, they look to the Hindu caste system and see just one incarnation of, of a social order um, and hierarchy that, that they think uh, is much older and, and goes beyond Hinduism, but Hinduism just happened to, um, to, to preserve it for us to see. Um, they think that that hierarchy is ordered um, along a number of different lines. Um, just as with Hinduism, they think that it opposes spirituality and materialism, that the upper caste in Hinduism, the Brahmins, are upper caste because they are priests, not warriors, not merchants, and certainly not slaves, which happen to be the caste that go beneath them. The lowest caste, slaves, uh, can be distinguished from the upper class, uh, upper caste, the priests, because they lack spirituality, because what they deal in and traffic in is the most material of all things, which is to say their own bodies, their workers, laborers, Maybe their aesthetics are, are, are geared towards sex and, and physical power and nothing else. Um, whereas, again, whereas, whereas a priestly caste is going to be spiritual in its orientation. Um, that basic distinction um, exists. There is also an opposition between quantity and quality, um, where the upper castes are, are typically smaller, uh, a sort of spiritual elite. Um, in their in their worldview, whereas the lower castes are massive, um, are, are and, and really their value exists and can only be measured by how many of them there are. Um, so 
that's a that's a bit of an introduction, but things get much more complex as you think about this hierarchy and as we start start to think about how it interacts with the time cycle. Um, they see not only an opposition between spiritualism and materialism, not only an opposition between quality and quantity, um, but according to some traditionalist thinkers like Julius Evola, you could also um, uh, picture that scale as an opposition between um, Aryan and non-Aryan peoples, that it is that it uh, the upper spiritual caste is most authentic when it is also racially Aryan, and that the lower caste is racially non-Aryan or Semitic, um, and thus that being spiritual also also has a, has a racial component to it. Um, Julius Evola thought that the upper caste were more masculinist. Um, in their ideals, and that they might actually literally be men in some ideal sense, opposite more feminine values and and women at the lower ranks of of that hierarchy. Um, it was also considered true uh, to to some of these early thinkers that um, uh, the the caste system itself and hierarchy itself was was a product and quality of spirituality. Whereas um, complete homogenization and a leveling of society was more akin to the to the slave ethic. Um, and briefly, um, these all of that all of those hierarchies, all that that sense of ordering in society interacts with the time cycle um, in the sense that traditionalists think a golden age, um, this age of enlightenment in the past, I shouldn't use the word enlightenment, um, this age of truth in the past and glory, is one where society also is ordered perfectly around this hierarchy. And as you move from that golden age into the dark age, that hierarchy disintegrates. And the dark age is one where there is no hierarchy, where everyone is leveled, where borders have disappeared, and all of society has been reduced to the lowest rung on the ladder, to the lowest level of the pyramid, to the slave caste, um, where materialistic values reign, um, where Aryans are no longer distinct, where racial differences no longer exist, but everyone is reduced to the lowest level, where feminine rather than masculine values um, persist, and where there is no knowledge of cyclicality of time, but instead a fake belief in progress and a demand for material equality among everybody. Um, so as I'm speaking there, that's a lot to take in. I know I've been speaking for a while here, Roma, but but hopefully some, some of your listeners can start to see um, how that way of thinking, how deeply it can conflict with ideals of modern liberal progress that, that surround us in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we'll get onto that and sort of what it, how all that stands in relation to democracy in a moment. But first, it just raises so many questions, what you've said. Can I just sort of pick up on some points? When traditionalists put Please. forward these are. When traditionalists put forward these ideas, do they cite historical evidence for there having a, been a period with the tradition, uh, or they just sort of think it was like that without any evidence? Not much. Not evidence that would satisfy, I think, I think a, a, an especially skeptical reader. Um, like, you know, like all social programs, religious teachings, or, or political doctrines, they're, they're much sharper when criticizing than affirming. Um, but part of part of the strength of their writing in that respect is that they they criticize modernity, which is something that we do know. Um, but what they valorize is is a historic period and a tradition that that by definition is so far in the past that they really can't speak about it with any specificity. Um, instead, they would look to uh, look to Hinduism uh, in, in some cases. Gosh, Rene, one of one of the early thinkers, Rene Gonon, talks about um, you know the beginnings of decline occurring when we started when the technology of writing enters human society. In other words, when um, when human society had had a pressing need to remember and record certain truths because those truths were were being forgotten in everyday oral culture. That's that's the sort of time <laughs> time span we're talking about here. So. Um, so, so evidence is going to be short in order for speaking, speaking with any degree of specificity or depth, um, about, uh, about, about the actual moment on in human history on planet earth when things were working the way they wanted them to work. 
Uh, I was going to ask you about technology, actually, and and it seems to me Steve Bannon is 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 enthusiastic about technology, communications, and so on, and and uses it. Uh, is there any contradiction in their mind, traditionalist mind? So we'll talk about whether he is actually a traditionalist later. But is there any contradiction in the mind of traditionalists and the use of technology? I think that there should be theoretically. Um, it, it really depends on one's ideological investment in technology, though. Do, do it, That's where just me as a commentator, I'm not that interested in refereeing debates amongst themselves, but it seems to me intuitive that um, a, a traditionalist would not view technological advance as equivalent to social advance writ large. They would not put any, 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 any of that sort of ideological investment in it. Um, and... So, uh, so, so it's more about interpretations of it, but there are lots of traditionalists who, who also see it as part of their task to disengage from technology, that, that divesting themselves ideologically in technology also ought to have its parallel in their daily practice. Um, so there are traditionalists who do not do email, do not use um uh, you know, mobile phones, you know, where they draw the line is, is, is of course, an interesting distinction. But for Steve Bannon and, and for others, uh, uh, technology is also a means, you know, the means that, that must be used to advance their cause. And they also see that, see technology as being nothing but the fate of our age in a materialistic age. So, so why, why rage against it? So th- there, are, there are conversations and explanations to be and justifications floating around there for traditionalists who want to use them. Is there a parallel with Marxism in the sense that, you know, uh, if you take Marxist theory, then things are just going to happen and revolutionary times will come and uh, there'll be, you know, Hmm. the utopia after the revolution and it's all uh, the the, the product of of social forces that are are happening, whether or not individuals understand it or not. Uh, So is is, is it like that, that there's there's Hmm. a, a, you know, a parallel with traditionally saying we're reaching the end times it's going to be back to glorious traditional period uh, but we, we just happen to have to, to help it along which doesn't really sort of um, you know may contradict the, the inevitability of it all yes yes and I, I love that you bring this up Owen because I, I actually haven't heard anybody quite say that draw that connection here but there's a fatalism to to both um, both eschatologies or teleologies um, Marxism and traditionalism. The Marxist, yes, would believe that, well, this this is all destined to happen. We should just wait for capitalism to kind of proceed through its vital phase, and then we will move to the next stage, whereas a traditionalist is going to be waiting for uh, also a, a, a sort of major fundamental transformation in society, but that won't take you to something new. That will instead return you to something that you were before. It's, it's just in that last stage where we see, see a difference here. But the question for, for everyone involved is yes, is like what, so what is the role of the activist? What does, uh, what does the agent do in this case? Do you just lie back and wait for, for the cosmos to move around you and, and rearrange, the, rearrange the board? Or um, are you going to get up and do something and participate in this? And that's, that question is, in differing responses to it, really separates most of traditionalism, which is which is anti-activist, which does not participate in politics, with a small little sliver um, who do, and who do think that they, as individuals and as agents, have a role to play in this cosmic time cycle. Now then, you've mentioned Hinduism as being the repository of some uh, traditional values that have that have sort of sustained in in the Hindu faith, particularly the caste system. Uh, mm. But some traditionalists, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things about what you've written in your book is that some of these guys uh, go to Sufi shrines in 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 the Muslim world, and and find some mm. spiritual truth there. So I mean, it's the last person you'd expect to find in a Sufi shrine, some you know American right wing ideologue. But that that happens, uh, and and so I'm wondering. In their view, which religions have little bits of this tradition still surviving? Is and which have most? Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism. Uh, most would say Hinduism on, on account of its antiquity, 
and and the the relatively unbroken nature of its practice. Um, and of course, there's there's a lot of discussion to be had about that. But what you know, the this the second place candidates um, would include first and foremost Sufism, and then secondarily Catholicism. And and the reasoning in each case is is similar. Um, I'll start with Catholicism. Just I'm, I'm just going to assume that that's a little bit more familiar to more more listeners. What what redeems Catholicism in the eyes of a lot of traditionalists is specifically its pre-Christian elements. It is almost the extent to which Catholicism is not Christian um, in the eyes of of some some onlookers that it can be redeemed and and thought to contain and incubate some some elements of of, of a deeper tradition. Um, so the paganism of of Catholicism, um, its saintly practice, this this drive to bring the sacred um, into the human world, um, this drive to expand the deities um, that, or or at least sacred beings that might be might be worthy of worship and, and spiritual veneration, um, its calendar, um, its rituals, all of the, all of those things. Um, which eventually became targets, of course, for um, for the Protestants, made you know make tr- Catholicism a little bit more redeemable for traditionalists because they think that um, you know Christianity was just uh, just a sort of vessel for those other those other faiths. Um, they look in in similar ways to Sufism. Think that among the branches of Islam that exist, that Sufism was the one that preserved um, most pre-Islamic. Um, religious insights and practices and institutions. Um, you know, you could contrast that. There are those who also look to Zoroastrianism, um, and and see see in Zoroastrianism, aha, uh-huh, there is a is a true you know uh, kin to Hinduism and to European paganism, um, and that's really where traditional where tradition lies. But that the thing that Zoroastrianism lacks is an active um, vital uh, practice um, that that has been more or less unbroken. Whereas whereas Sufism is is this world of of you know of, of hierarchy of of informal institutionalization that has practiced and, and maintained itself for many many generations, um, and that makes it attractive to traditionalists. So so yes, it, you know it was, it was an interesting thing. I, I I had a conversation with Steve Bannon that really baffled me. I. I asked him, "Well, could you have been a, a Sufi instead of a Catholic? I mean, would you? Would you? Is it all just a wash to you?" And he really had trouble answering. <laughs> you know, it eventually came down to the fact that, well, I wasn't raised Sufi, so it's just not intuitive to me. Um, but, but yeah, but he could have though. There was a. It, it was what was interesting to me is that you have Steve Bannon. This advisor to President Trump's, you know, kind of struggling with the question I asked him about whether he could be a Sufi. Yeah, it, it was a totally amazing passage in your book that that uh, he sort of did seem to accept the possibility of becoming a Sufi. And when many people in, you know, the, the sort of cauldron of American politics would associate him with the Muslim ban and, um, mm-hmm. you know, of being hostile to Islam. But uh, he was sitting there saying almost that he could imagine being a Sufi. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let me ask just another couple of points about traditionalism. I mean, just, just one thing that um, it was quite amusing is pe- people likening it to the f- the Force in Star Wars, and I sort of get it because I mean, you know, the, the Force is this ancient set of beliefs that are only just little glimpses of in some individuals nowadays, and it, there are parallels, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, in some of some of Steve Bannon's um, pseudonyms that. You know that one uses to to signal him at a at a hotel. It's you know it's you know Alec Guinness or you know th- things relating to Obi Wan Kenobi. But yeah, th- this. Well, so hang on, he does that. Yes, that was that was how I had to. If if I went to a hotel lobby where he was staying, I you don't go up there and say, "Hey, is Steve Bannon here? Can I talk to Steve Bannon?" It's it's Alec Guinness here. Um, uh, and and yeah, it was a rec- it was a research assistant of mine who said, "Well." You know the f- most famous role, of course, is Obi Wan Kenobi from Star Wars, and there you have a you have a priest warrior um, whose real power rests in in his knowledge of a transcendent power that exists. It's immaterial in the world, 
Um, it, it exists in all places. It's accessible to different types of people in different ways. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's really the domain and the prerogative of those who combine um, knowledge of the material world with also access to spiritual and immaterial truths. Um, you know, is this not how Steve Bannon is viewing himself? Um, I, I mean, apropos your question earlier, oh, and this is someone who is working in the material world, working with technology, in the nitty gritty, in the trenches of politics. Um, but he really believes that Trump, you know, Nigel Farage, Jair Bolsonaro, Modi in India, that all these 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 crude figures are actually working towards some spiritual goal and have and and are, are actually predestined uh, to play a role in, in a greater eschatology and a greater turning of the ages. Um, yeah, so yeah. so you see that combination, yes, spiritual spiritual priest warrior. Priest warrior. I mean, it does. Yeah. I mean, it would have probably blown your access, but you must have been tempted at some stage to say, "Look, you're a highly intelligent man, Steve Bannon. You know, he obviously is a very, very bright <laughs> yeah. guy." Uh, and, and and you know, this is apocalyptic, evidence-free nonsense. Mm-hmm. Did, did you ever get close to sort of saying something like that? I got very frustrated with him. It's, it's almost like you can have these conversations with him that are, are very interesting. He's very well-read. He, he is compelling and engaging. It's, it's, it's very rewarding. The second Trump enters the room with him, things get stupid. It, it's just like the floor just falls out from underneath you. Um, and, and he's willing to say anything. He's willing to look past any... Um, any piece of evidence um, just to make it all work, to make Trump be the right person for this plan that he has. And, you know, it it wasn't, it it wasn't that I, it was both feeling, yes, a little offended as a private citizen, um, upset, but also just really disappointed in him actually that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't continue speaking at this level because, um, you know, putting it all together with, with these figures, it just doesn't work. It's, it's just such, it's such an overwhelming clash of, um, of ideals and realities when, when you, when you bring it down to earth. Um, but perhaps there's no, you know, I, I say that at the same time as I, as, as one can sit and think that anybody who is so up in the clouds with their ideas it, it seems when they start to try and implement them, especially through politics, it gets very scary. Um, it's it's one of the reasons why I'm, you know, as a private person, kind of resigned to a much more enjoying a much more boring political life. Is that is that the you know the the real ideologues tend to be dangerous when they have political power and when they have when they have control over practical aspects of daily life. And this, so maybe there's nothing exceptional with that, but it is. It is always disappointing having a conversation with him about that. But you didn't think he was just being a cynical power grabber, you know, through his relationship with Trump, and that the whole thing—he knows it's ridiculous, but he 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 wants power, so he he goes along with Trump. It's not like that. He does have core beliefs in this area. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think that he's anything. It was very frustrating to me when I when I was first promoting the book because everyone kind of wanted to know, well, what is your verdict on Steve Bannon? And the truth is, is, is my impression is much more what you just described, Owen, is that like everyone, we shouldn't be surprised, but like everyone, he's, he's hypocritical. Um, he is paradoxical. He is unresolved. And, and part of you know, what, was, what was playing in this case was just some of his political ideals, some of his understandings of history, his reading of politics, and this uh, just insatiable, this, this um, inflexible, this rigid drive to justify the, his, his partnership with Trump and his investment in these, in these political leaders. Um, that's where things really fall apart. Uh, but but I, think, I think you have to deal, it, it's, it's all floating there. I mean, he wants to work with them. He wants the power. He wants the influence. Um, it, there's a, a case to be made about him wanting personal enrichment and, and for, and for his various supporters and benefactors. 
and and the ideals are there and they're floating around too. And he's been devoted to at least studying and talking about them for a very long time. So I I I, I would rather see readers and onlookers deal with all of those things at once than say one is true and the others are all just false. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, it, it, it is an important question, and, and you've said that traditionalism is a very broad church, as it were. Uh, is it right to say Bannon is a traditionalist, or just that you know he has some traditionalist ideas and some sympathy with it, or is he? Does it, would he self-identify as a traditionalist? He he does always with qualifications. So he self-identifies as, as a yes, uh, and he would say, yeah, I'm a traditionalist in this sense. I am a traditionalist, but I don't do this and this and this. Um, you know, typically when I when he's saying that, he's referring to to Julius Ebola's racialized understandings of hierarchy. Um, but yes, yes, he does. And and I'm generally comfortable um, granting him that that label. Um, part of that reveals my own orientation as a scholar. I'm I'm more of an anthropologist than a historian of ideas. Um, I'm more interested in seeing what other people call something and how they talk about something like traditionalism, how they define themselves, rather than me coming in again as a referee and saying, okay, here's my list of criteria. Um, I'm going to call you a traditionalist and you not a traditionalist. It just, I, I just don't see the value in that. I could, I could do that and the world will go on using labeling itself in the way that it wants to. Um, completely ignoring me. Um, but here's one thing to, to, to ground that a bit more. Um, so Steve Bannon also um, recognizes some of the divinity of Joseph Smith in there by the Mormon church. Um, he thinks that the Book of Mormon was in some way divinely inspired, um, and he has read the Book of Mormon. What he does not do um, is associate with other people uh, specifically because they too think that Joseph Smith was um, was divinely inspired. Um, he does not try to coordinate with other people who think that Joseph Smith was divinely inspired, and he, and he does not let his um, at, does not center um, his political activism um, or justify it based on reference to Joseph Smith. If he did all of those things, we would probably call him some kind of a Mormon, right? <laughs> You know, or something in, in that sphere. Maybe whether or not he was church going, and whether or not he was he was officially signed up. We would say, okay, Steve Bannon is in some way uh, Mormon, and lets and his Mormonism is, is significant to his activism. Um, but he doesn't do any of those things, so we don't call him that. He does do all those things with traditionalism. He not only reads, but he admires. He not only admires. Um, but he speaks about, not only speaks about, but associates with other people, lets his social life be, be guided by it, and it has informed his political activism. So for on, on all those grounds, I'm happy to call him um, some kind of a traditionalist, no doubt. That, pro that prompts this question. Is he opposed to democracy? I think that you have to say that his ideals his ideal society in general, and then even if you look at the United States, I haven't, I haven't talked about how he re relates all this to Americanism. Um, democracy is at the very, very least not an essential part of it. Um, I'm being careful here and just kind of sticking on firm grounding, but um, I think whereas most other political ideologues operating in, in liberal democracies today will look to democracy as itself a sort of object of spiritual veneration or, or as an essential definition of the communities that they're fighting for. Bannon does not. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's big. Um, I don't think either 
when you look, uh, let me let me speak about this in terms of kind of traditionalist ideals in the, in the more the more theoretical sense. Um, democracy is one of the political ideologies that seems to relate best to the egalitarian, materialistic, quantifiable ideals that traditionalism uh, assigns to the lowest levels of the hierarchy and to the dark age. Um, it is really of a kind, a sort of yin to yang relationship with communism. Um, in that democracy is really about assigning political power based on quantities of bodies. Um, and, and a lot of people would say also that it, it has an inherent secularism um, built into it. Um, opposite theocracy, right? Where political power is not, is not assigned based on, based on quantities um, of people or the masses, but based on a spiritual elite and their insight. And there's ostensible insight. Um, so it's set up there. And for Bannon, um, part of the way that he, part of what he takes from this is also to say that, okay, well, democratic, secular, um, egalitarian ideals cannot be good, cannot be uh, really an, an utmost value to us. Um, really spiritual values are deeper and also and also the fact that democratic egalitarianism is, is often seen as a new thing, as a progressive thing. That that also prompts it, primes it to be rejected by Bannon. And so he he looks, for example, at the history of the United States and is almost compelled to do something that virtually none of us do, which is to say that its defining characteristics are not to be found in the Constitution, um, in in the Enlightenment values that um that defined our government, our civic religion, our sort of creedal nationalism, whereby anybody can become American essentially so long as they endorse these secular political values of freedom of speech, liberty, equality, and all that. Instead, he says, no real Americanism lies in revolutionary spirituality, in the drive of the earlier pilgrims to leave and create something new so that they could incubate their spiritual beliefs and let them let them germinate it's a pre-democratic um americanism uh, that is the actual ideal so thinking all, all of that um is it is it a surprise if if, if i can just pose a question is it, is it a surprise then that he has been so ruthless in wanting to let's say support the the riots <laughs> Um, last January that we're contesting the democratic election that he right now is talking about and, and urging his supporters through media channels uh, to infiltrate and, and frankly obstruct electoral processes um, the next time we have an election. In other words, that he is showing less reverence for, for our democratic institutions um, than other politicians or at least feel compelled to pay lip service to. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think all these ideas floating around together um, actually do gel. So, again, sorry, so I'm giving you these long answers, Owen, but the, these are these are big, important topics. No, it's actually fascinating. And but uh, I mean, I'm I'm just wondering whether you, in your heart of hearts, would would actually go further. But you just don't want to be too controversial, and you know, because I mean, if you went further, you'd say that he doesn't believe in democracy. He wishes for a return to the tradition. Uh, and that he may want to force it by a violent overthrow of the current arrangements, which is what January the 6th was, and who knows what the next iteration of that process will be. I mean, he, I think he has described himself as a Leninist who wants to destroy things to create things, is not he? Mm-hmm. He has. Um, so why that... are you hesitating to say he's, he's you know, he's, he's what he says he is, which is he's opposed to democracy and wants to bring it down? Well, he has never said that he's opposed to democracy and wants to bring it down. The the question, what it, the more compelling thing, I mean, what what you asked is, you know, what does he actually believe in his heart of hearts? I've never heard him call himself explicitly an opponent of democracy, though he does want to destroy um, the modern institutions. I, the reason I hesitate, um, Owen, is that I I don't want to find myself in a place of mind reading, and I and I've. I've learned throughout the years that as soon as I just assume that a certain belief is just a logical conclusion of some other ideas that someone has, and I start to move to just want to voice it myself and kind of finish the story for them, um, 
it, it turns out they're thinking in another way, or it turns out that they they maintain contradictory ideas and they're and they're struggling themselves to figure it out. In other words, it's not impossible to me that all of this is there for Bannon, and yet for some reason, you know, floating in another part of his mind is a commitment to democracy. That is possible. Um, but it is very, it's, I, I don't hesitate to say that I think that this constellation of ideas separates him fundamentally um, from essentially everyone, any major player um, on the political stage, at least in, in my lifetime um, in, in American politics. And I think I would say British politics as well. So, so that's, that's as far as, as, as I'm willing to go, but I, I certainly don't oppose the question being asked. I think it's a le- legitimate question to, to ponder. One way of getting at it may be to look at traditionalists uh, operating in non-democratic systems or sort of semi-democratic systems to see you know, how open they are uh, in their views. So uh, can you do that for us? I mean, I think there are, you know, there's Dugin, is it? In, 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 I don't know if I got the pronunciation right. In Russia, who's close to Putin and believes some of this yes. stuff. And, and there are others who are traditionalists in power in various places. What, what do they say about democracy? For, for Alexander Dugin, um, who's, who's a prominent ideologue in Russia, um, there, there is, there is no hesitation. Um, democracy in his mind is, is something very wicked. And at best, it should be the private prerogative or folk belief of just a few societies. It should not be the, the, the sort of hegemonic standard um, that the rest of the world, in his mind, is being unfairly held to. Um, so he, he, he sees the universalism of democracy and, and of liberalism, um, the belief that all people have a right to self-determination, that, all, that human rights is actually a universal concept, um, that all of those are, are, are really fundamentally spiritually evil beliefs coming from the West. Um, so yes, we can, we can, we can dispense with ambiguity when, when we move, when we move to Dugan, um, it's, you know, for, in his case, it motivates also his support for Russian imperialism because he believes that if Russia, whether it's in Georgia or Ukraine, um, whether it's in the North Caucasus or, or any place else, that if Russia asserts a formal boundary to U.S. power and also a boundary to democracy and liberalism, you will have done something much larger than that. You will actually have subverted and rejected the universality of democracy and of liberalism, Um, and that you will have um, prevented the creation of, of a new mass homogeneity in the world and erected a border one border. And remember, thinking back to what I was talking about earlier, um, one border, you know, borders have spiritual significance for the traditionalist. Boundaries do. That's what, that's what a hierarchy is. It's, it's, it's an ordered, structured system. Um, and, and so for, for Dugan, this is all tied in, and, and a rejection of universal democracy is very much a part of it. Um, if, if we look at the other figure that I wrote about a lot in the book, Olava de Cavalho, who is... Um, a, a, a former former convert and initiate, what would we call him, a, a formally initiated into a traditionalist Sufi Tariqa. Um, he is now one of the most prominent ideologues and philosophers for Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and and he, he had more, more indisputable political influence than any of the other figures, even though he never held a, a formal position in the cabinet because he was being consulted to pick cabinet members in Bolsonaro's government, including the foreign minister, including the minister of education. Um, the foreign minister in particular uh, is also uh, a student of Olavo's and, um, and in, a, in a very, very shrewd student of traditionalism and enthusiast for traditionalism as well. Um, and his, his attitude toward democracy, it's, it's, there, there have been some casual comments about the upcoming elections in Brazil, which are taking place later this year, and you know, and um, already criticizing and trying to undermine the le- the legitimacy of the democratic process there to, I think, you know, set the stage for some sort of some sort of democratic or or non democratic protest and rejection of a, of an anticipated loss of Bolsonaro later on. 
Um, Olavo has been doing those things, but I think of, of, of more direct significance is, is not necessarily elections and votes per se, Owen, but the way that these figures have been rejecting other, other institutions of democracy. Um, if, it, if it is bureaucratic processes in a liberal democratic state, which we all roll our eyes about, but which are nonetheless very important, um, and, and media and education. Um, uh, Olavo in, in Brazil, the traditionalist there, has been doing about everything he can to erode faith in media and to erode faith in science and, um, and education. This all, of course, became a major problem uh, during the coronavirus outbreak um, when he himself, but also his ministers, were very, very resistant to taking protective measures um, and, and, and relatively slow in implementing vaccines um, because this all ostensibly came from a scientific establishment that was peddling nonsense and untruths. So, um, so there we saw, we saw we saw some consequences there. But the broader the broader issue was rejecting uh, um, the the avenues that a population uses to inform itself and thereby to participate in democratic society. So, so there's a, there's a, re- a rejection there. I think we should be be mindful of that too when we're talking about democracy. Okay, so you've talked about some of the people abroad. I mean, when I say that, I mean outside the United States, uh, who believe these things. What about in the U.S.? I mean, it occurs to me that Bannon, in thinking these things, must be quite isolated. I mean, there can't be many people who think this stuff, and no. and, and not and not at a high level of U.S. politics. Or am I wrong about that? Has he has he got a sort of coterie of traditionalist advisors and hangers-on who 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 actually think think this stuff's true? Generally, no. I, I, although I was surprised, I Bannon relayed to me one one time in the White House when he was, you know, speak, two times actually. Um, once he was speaking to Trump, um, and Bannon has this born, I think, of his traditionalism, this belief that Trump Trump's role in history is to destroy. And he's having a conversation with Trump about that. And Trump doesn't like that idea of himself. So he says, no, I'm not a destroyer. I'm a creator. And Bannon's, Bannon relayed to me that he said to himself in his mind, he said, okay, let Trump think whatever he wants. It doesn't matter. In other words, um, uh, it, it, he, Bannon does not need to have devoted traditionalists around him in order to carry on with this project because uh, he doesn't need, they don't really need to know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, they can in a, be be essentially the pawns in this scheme um, without knowing it, and everything will be just just as fine. Another conversation came up with Trump's son-in-law, um, Jared Kushner, about uh, about U.S. interventions in Syria and whether the U.S. needed to intervene. Jared Kushner said, um, "You know, the U.S. needs to because terrible things are going on there." And Bannon, reading our age as the dark age, responded to him saying, "You know." Well, we're living in a dark age. This is an age of destruction and terror. This is just the way it's going to be. You know, accept it, in other words. Horrified Jared Kushner. Um, you know, they didn't have a conversation about traditionalism per se, but it let let him know that Bannon was operating with some very eccentric understanding of society and of history. Um, and Bannon certainly didn't, he at least had the sense not to push that any further. So he's very, that's, that's the way he lives his life with these ideas. Having said that, I was surprised by a few, I can't use their names, but a few people floating around him, most of them younger, um, who happen to be very, very schooled in traditionalism, knew a lot about it, um, and do appear with him fairly frequently in, in media appearances and, and sometimes in just organizing events too. I really said so there might be a bit of a traditionalist organization actually. Yes, and I would say probably casually. I doubt it would be anything that Bannon would try to create. For how does he? How, do, how does he see himself? I mean, does he think he's a you know a man of unusual perception who's managed to grasp the true verities of the uh, you know the world and eternity and so on? The, the, these ideas, uh, and, and that um, he alone uh, is battling through the thickets of American politics to help everyone achieve what, you know, the utopia of some kind, or, or is he more cynical? How, how does he, how does he, is he just power crazy? And how does he see himself? 
Uh, I'd say yes to everything you just you just mentioned. Um, uh, yes, certainly power crazy. Um, very inflated, unabashed sense of his own importance. Um, but the specifics, more interesting than all of that, are, are the specifics in that it is he thinks that he is carrying us through a period of destruction into a period of of, of improvement um, and in, into a sort of golden age, um, and that and that he has the insights about that. Um, a figure like Trump, in his mind, does not have that insight. That's the difference between himself and Trump. I think in this in this ideology um, is that Trump is a tool. Trump is a mechanic. Um, Trump is doing technical things, but he does not understand. Bannon is is working in the trenches and he understands. He sees the big picture. He sees the time cycle. That's what's going on. Gosh, well, so so where does where does it all go? I mean, uh, the series we're, we're you know taking part in now is called the future of. What's the future of Steve Bannon? I mean, does he want power? Actually, I mean, does he does he does he want to rule? Um, I don't know that he himself wants to be a political figure. He's he's a, apparently toyed with that idea casually in conversation with some people. He never has with me. Um, I think he wants to continue doing what he's been doing for the past decades, which is finding vessels, um, if it's Sarah Palin, if it's Donald Trump, if it's Bolsonaro, um, to work through, um, riding them as long as he can, and then moving to someone else. Um, it's taking control of the Republican Party. Um, it is It is seeing real radical confrontation with democratic process in the in the United States. I think he's doing all of those things. Yeah, it's, he's a very cons- consequential person, isn't he? He is. It it's so it was so interesting. After 2017, when he exits the White House, there's this huge media conversation, it's attention to him, and then there's this pushback, and there's a lot of criticism of commentators who were paying attention to him and people saying, This guy Bannon, don't you see what a phony he is? He's power hungry, he exaggerates, he lies, he's a showman. There's no substance to this person. Let's 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 all agree to ignore him. That was 2018, 17, and it certainly bled over into the early reception of my book. You don't hear that those voices are gone now. And I, 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 and 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 no one's made amends. Bannon has just kept himself in the thick of things um, any way he can. And he's going to continue doing that. I, I, I said, I didn't write the book. I really don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor. Oh, and I'm not a journalist. I'm not really guided by relevance and, and, you know, currency in the, in the way that a journalist often is. I really, I was just interested in the history of traditionalism. This is just an, a, a really just unbelievable development in the history of that idea. That's really how I came to it. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking the whole time to these, these commentators, what are you all thinking? This guy has a million projects going on. He he has all sorts of benefactors. Um, most of his projects will fail. Every now and then one of them is going to succeed. And he's very, very good at, not not necessarily in a traditional spirit, he's, very, he's not great at creating things that work, but he is very good at disrupting. Um, and he's not going to stop and and that's that's really what's what's happened at, at this point. If you want to say who is in control of the Republican Party, you could talk about the party apparatus. Um, you could talk about somebody. Maybe you talk about Donald Trump. No, there's there's a there's an argument to be made that it is Steve Bannon, this nobody who has no who is a private citizen, who for the blowhard, the power hungry ego egomaniac. Is still is still there, and he is thinking ahead. He's thinking ahead about um, the next election and the election after that in a way that I think a lot of people are not in the U.S. So it, I do not expect him to go away by any means. Do you still have access to him after writing all this? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. Um, you know, Alexander Dugan, for whatever reason, was was happy with my presentation. At least felt that I was fair to him. Because um, you wrote about Dugan in the book too, yeah. Yeah, I wrote about Dugan in the book. Um, Olavo de Cavallo, the Brazilian, just went berserk and 
you know, called me all sorts of names and, and, and really was riffing on me for a year in hour long videos. And, and he has, a, he has an enormous social media following. So that was, that was an experience. Bannon, I think just, you know, I, I, I don't think that he liked the way that he was characterized. I don't think he liked the big conclusions I made. And, and that's, that's been that. And I, and I haven't heard of him, heard from him since. Well, it's uh, been a very interesting hour listening to you talking about this, and we're very grateful for, well, all the research you've put in to work out what's going on. Because just should just say, before we started this interview, you were saying, you know, the, the whole American media is talking about the right and the far right, and there's endless acres of newsprint written about it, and yet no one actually sits down to ask, what do these people think? What are they saying? What, what, what's going mm-hmm. on ideologically? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that, and that's, that's a problem. We'll state the obvious. That is a, people, people have their, their narratives about it and, and yet they're scared to really test them. And, yep. and I'd like people to not be scared. I'd like people to show some confidence in themselves. The world will not fall apart if you delve into these ideas. Well, it's great that you've done so and you've explained it to us so clearly. So uh, Professor Teitelbaum, thank you very much indeed. A, a, a real honor, Owen. Thank you so much for having, having me on.